Well, good evening. Hi, there's more than two people out there. I even take my glasses off, I know that. Uh, this is the very word of the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts in your thoughts. And as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return until they have watered the earth, making it blossom and bear fruit, and give seed for sowing and bread to eat, so shall the word which comes from my mouth prevail. It shall not return to me fruitless without accomplishing my purpose and succeeding in the task I gave it. Are we no better than pots of earthenware to contain this treasure? And this proves that such transcendent power does not come from us, but as God's alone. But Scripture says, I believed, and therefore I speak out. And we too, in the same spirit of faith, believe, and therefore speak out. For we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus to life will, will, will with Jesus raise us too and bring us to his presence. And you with us, indeed it is for your sake that all things are ordered so that the abounding grace of God is shared by more and more, the greater may be the chorus of thanksgiving that ascends to the glory of God. Now I may speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but if I have no love, I'm a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I may have the gift of prophecy and know every hidden truth. I may have strength, faith, faith strong enough to go on removing mountain after mountain, but if I have no love, I am nothing. I may dole out all I possess to the poor, or even give my body to be burnt, that I might glory as a martyr. But if I have no love, I have not profited even one thing. Love is patient, and love is kind, and envies no one. Love is never boastful, nor conceited, nor rude, never selfish, not quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs, does not gloat over other men's sins, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, it believes all things. There is no limit to its hope. It hopes all things. There is no limit to its endurance. It endures all things. Love will never come to an end. Are there prophets? Their work will be over. Are there tongues? They will cease. Is there knowledge? It will vanish away. For our prophecy and our knowledge are like a partial, and the partial vanishes when wholeness comes. When I was a child, my speech, my thought, my outlook were all childish. But when I'd grown up, I'd finished with childish things. Now we see only puzzling reflections in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. My knowledge now is partial. It will be whole like God's knowledge of me. In a word, there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of them all is love. <laughs> Pursue love. And it is by this that we even know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we, in our turn, are bound to lay down our lives for our brethren. But if we see a neighbor in need and have enough to live on and yet shut up, shut up our heart against them, how can it be said that divine love dwells in us? My children, love must not be a matter of words or talk. It must be genuine and show itself in action. I'll just stop there and say good evening again. Uh, I'm not quoting anymore, it's just me. Those, uh, <laughs> those scriptures from Isaiah 55, 9 through 11, second, two places in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, 1a, 1 John 3, 16 and 17 form the foundation for our ministry, and it is a joy to be back to, to share that again with you. We call it Word Sower. Wordsower Company and Wordsower International, and we're about speaking the scriptures into the church of Jesus Christ, 
for your edification, exhortation, consolation, and equipping for the work of service, which is the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, we've been allowed to do this for over 40 years now, and uh, soon, sometime soon we'll get it together and know what we're doing. But uh, a few years ago, the Lord gave us opportunity to become involved in the needs of orphans and with refugees and widows in various places around the world. Uh, each day, Word Sower International feeds about 1,000 kids. We sit them down at every meal. We have orphan homes in Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, four places in India and Haiti. We have anti-trafficking work in Nepal. Uh, we work with widows in Liberia. We have a very large ministry there to widows. We have some handicapped children in uh, Liberia that are in danger. We have um, church planting in Liberia and in India, over 600 churches in Liberia, over 500 in India, Bible Institute in Liberia, Bible Institute in India. We do um, work in anti-child trafficking, anti-human trafficking in Nepal now, and we also work with mountain pastors there that don't have any education or access to materials. Uh, we do seminars for those gentlemen, and God is working there pretty ex excitingly, and uh, persecution is increasing, our ministries increase, and I don't know why that is the same, but that's what's happening. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be back there in October to minister the word and um, pray for us. We uh, have over 300 children in our home in Haiti. That's a large orphan home. Our facility's beautiful for 250 kids. And we have over 300, and every day there's somebody there to offer more children. They stand at the gate and wait for us to open in the morning. They offer children. We don't have room for children. We found another piece of property with God's enabling and the generosity of his people. We bought it. Almost finished with the purchase of that. We have to pay taxes and fees to the notaries. But uh, basically, we've paid for the property. Uh, the goal now is to develop it for 600 more children, which would mean 900 children in Haiti in our care, which is a huge Orphan work, most orphan homes are 25 to 50 children. Uh, we think we can handle that number, and every one of those children we remove from the marketplace, either to be sold or trafficked or prostituted or put into hard labor. So we feel we're just taking those children out of the market, and we're really glad to do it. And we're excited about what God's doing in their life, giving them hope for eternity and giving them hope even for tomorrow. We got the teenagers together last year, and I said, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'd never heard that. These kids came out of the worst slums in the Port-au-Prince area. And for them, tomorrow was the future. To them, is there food tomorrow? That's my hope for the future. As most street kids, when they come in, the first thing, the first meal, they, they always take a portion and put it in their pocket so they'll have something to eat later. And you can tell when they're at home and without fear when they stop doing that. And they start eating everything we give them and know that tomorrow we're going to give it to them again because God is absolutely faithful. And we teach them that because we seek to live that out as well. God is faithful. When I don't have any faith, he remains faithful. And he really does, you know, and he really is. He can't lie. And... Uh, so pray for us, if you will. If you'd like more information about our ministry, there's a sign-up sheet for our weekly email update. Maybe some of you get it. Uh, we'd love to send it to you, and you have to kind of put up with my poetry, but other than that, it's okay. It's informative, 
And we, we'd love you to pray with us each week for the needs of our children, because nothing functions without your prayer support. Thank you. Uh, tonight... Okay. <laughs> Tonight, as the Lord allows, I'd like to spend an evening with you with the Apostle Paul. Uh, these are not long books. We like to go through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Titus, and the sermon from Acts 17. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about Paul's life around those books and what he has to say to us, moved by the Holy Spirit, to speak. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being before your people here. I pray in your name that you'll go before your word and open our hearts, give us ears to hear deeply, give us understanding, give us wisdom, move us to be doers of this word, not hearers only so that your name might be glorified by the fruit we bear as we act upon the hearing of your word. Enable me to speak this appropriately. Wash us with the water of the hearing to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Paul, who was born Saul, right? He knew his, his tribe, his parents probably immigrated to Tarsus, which was a Roman city-state, on the coast of Asia Minor, near the southwest corner, what we would call Turkey now. And Tarsus was a Roman city-state, so there you spoke Latin. They had a big circus, a big uh, place for games and races and stuff. They had uh, Roman toilets. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Uh, I don't know why you would look for them, but anyway, you, uh, there's just a whole row of toilets, and then there's water running underneath them, which was pretty advanced, and water running in front, because toilet paper, of course, you didn't use, and uh, our friends in India understand that perfectly, and, um, but the Romans lived, that was a, a spot of Roman culture. They were trying to spread their culture, as the Greeks had done before them. Uh, there was a Greek city-state near where Jesus was born and raised in Nazareth, and that was to spread Greek culture, Hellenist culture, to spread their language, the language of learning, which was Greek at that time, and, and the way they lived. Well, Rome had the same thing afterwards, and Tarsus was one of their Roman city-states. If you were born in Tarsus, it was as if you were born legally in Rome itself. You, you were born to the citizenship of the city of Rome. This family either immigrated from what we would call Judea or the Galilee or from the area around Babylon where Israel had been exiled. And at that time, there were more Jews in the Babylon area than there were in what we would now call Palestine, Judea and the Galilee. And they, they had constant contact with the temple, but most of the people were still living there. They sent their offerings by caravan, and some families, when they immigrated, they weren't where the work was, of course, as we do, and this family went to um, Tarsus, and he was a Pharisee by choice. He was a strict law keeper, the dad of this family, and they birthed a son. We don't know if he was the first son, last son, in-between son. We know he had cousins. We know he had nephews. Uh, we don't know where he was in the family order, and we don't know how long he lived there. 
but he was born in Tarsus and then became, was a Roman citizen by birth. That's important, and we see him use that later in his life. And he was precocious, he was brilliant, he was hungry to learn, he learned the language of Tarsus, Latin, he learned the language of the synagogue, Hebrew Aramaic, he learned biblical Hebrew, he learned Greek, which was the language of learning, and he was insatiable in reading. And he was a Pharisee like his father. He was a strict law keeper, finding his position before God as flawless, faultless as a law keeper. He ended up being shipped off by the family, probably because they ran out of resources to teach him, because he read everything that was available, they sent him to Jerusalem to study under a man by the name of Gamaliel. Now, there were a number of Gamaliels, but this guy at this point was a, the teacher of Israel, and he went to school before him, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew speaker from a Hebrew-speaking family. He was outstripping most of his contemporaries among his fellow countrymen. He was exceedingly zealous for his ancestral traditions. You'll hear all that again in Galatians. And he was on the fast track to be a teacher of Israel. And he was not Levitical, so he couldn't be a priest. He wasn't Aaronic, he couldn't be a high priest. So teacher was the role that he was aspiring to, and a high-placed teacher at that. And he was going on in that. Now at the time that he got there, and we're not sure exactly when he got there, but it was after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus to heaven, maybe, probably after Pentecost, uh, at some point he was there and the way, the followers of Jesus, was spreading. And he became incensed about it because it was taught and it was communicated that this way was a sect of Judaism like the Essenes and the Zealots and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, Paul, Saul, was named after the guiding light of Benjamin, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And of course, that Saul was a head taller than everybody else. He was quite the man, and he was a mighty warrior. This Saul didn't quite measure up. He was kind of short. We've heard he's bow-legged, kind of going bald. Uh, not exactly your big standard of manhood, right? Just a guy. And he, uh, but being brilliant, he was going on. It didn't matter. And he started leading the charge against the way. He was in with the high priests. He was in with the Sanhedrin, the gathering of the leaders of Israel and the teachers of Israel. And he was instigating for the quashing of this thing called the way. This is about 10 years after the ascension of Jesus, we understand, where the church had been meeting in Solomon's portico, the porch in the temple, and the persecution broke out under around Stephen, who was preaching powerfully, and they couldn't suppress him. And then they stoned him, and everyone laid their coats at the feet of this Saul. And he was agreeing with it. Now, it didn't say he stood there and hold, held him. That's the kind of the picture we always get. They just laid him at his feet, he guarded him. He may have thrown a few rocks, but he was the kind of guy that was sitting there saying, go ahead, throw it at him. I am a little higher kind of guy, right? Necessarily the guy throwing it, although he was zealous. He was willing to be in front. Zealous zeal, by the way, is a, a form of jealousy. It means to be jealous for God. And if you're zealous for God, and he 
followed up that stoning of Stephen with the persecution of the church throughout Jerusalem. They were going into homes. They were grabbing people and dragging them out. They were putting them in prison. They were beating them. They were killing them. And as when they ran out of people to grab in Jerusalem, now you think of how many that was. There were quite a few. There were 5,000 on the first day, right? And he went to the, the Sanhedrin, to the, the high priest and their family and their cohorts, and got letters of introduction to go to Damascus to do the same thing there against the Christians, although they weren't called Christians then, against the way and the followers of this Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, which everyone knew he couldn't possibly be. He died. How can a Messiah die? So Saul's going to Damascus. He's got some guys with him. And we don't know if he was on the horse or walking. We, what we do know is along the way he ran into light, the light of God. And that light knocked him down. And within that light, there was a vision for Saul of Jesus. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul from the ground, Lord, who are you? Which, that's wise to call this guy that just knocked you down with light, Lord, right? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He didn't know what to do. And the guys with him could hear the voice, but they couldn't see the vision. And they were terrified. And Saul got up and was led into town, into the city. He would be told what to do. He went there and he was blind when he got up. For three days, he wouldn't eat, wouldn't drink, and God was teaching him all that he was going to have to endure for the name's sake. And it was a lot. I don't know about you, but if I had known all that was going to have to happen to me in life, I might change my mind, right? And Saul was far worse. He was beaten times beyond number. He was whipped, 39 lashes, multiple times. He was beaten with rods. It's 40 strokes minus one, so 39 for that too. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned once and left for dead. He met dangers everywhere he turned. And he was in public ministry for maybe 30 years in all of that. He walked all over the eastern Mediterranean. He didn't have a car or a motor home. Or he just walked. And God was telling them all that he was going to have to endure for the sake of his name. And he was also talking to Ananias, the prophet. He said, Ananias, I want you to go to the street called Straight and, and inquire for this man named Saul, and there I want you to lay hands on him. And Ananias is going, uh, okay, God, but God. <laughs> you know, this guy, we've heard a lot about him, and he's done terrible things. And uh, are you sure you want me to go to him, right? And God says, go, he's my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And I'm telling him all that he's going to have to endure for the name's sake. And so Ananias goes to him, lays hands on him, and as scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight. By the way, his eyes were never good from then on. He suffered from eye damage, eye problems, uh, infections, we understand, the rest of his life but now he could at least see. And he went out and took food and was baptized, took food, and began preaching. And he changed his name. 
Old Saul, king of Israel, mighty man of God, became Paul, which means little one, of no account. That's what happens in your heart when God gets a hold of it. He changes you from trusting in your flesh and being great and strong to being small in his sight, knowing who you are in his sight, and walking in his meekness now. Saul, become Paul, the little one of no account, and mighty in God. He went out early and preached in an area called Galatia, which is far eastern Asia Minor, around Tarsus. And he went to Cilicia and other areas and preached the gospel and planted the church. At one point, he was moved to the Spirit of God to write a letter back to the churches of Galatia because a problem had arisen in the church where people began to say, not a Jew, you can't be a Christian. In other words, you have to be circumcised if you're a guy, you have to keep the law, or you can't be a Christian. And of course, that's not what the gospel is about at all. Let's hear Paul's response to that. He says, from Paul, an apostle, not sent by man, agency of man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, raised him from the dead, to the churches, and all those with me, to the churches in Galatia, Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up on our behalf and for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom be glory for endless ages. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for another. Not that it really is another, but there are some who are trying to disturb you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the gospel which he preached to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I now say again, if any man preached to you a gospel contrary to the gospel which you receive from us, let him be accursed. Am I now striving to please men or God? Am I still striving to please, striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I want you to understand, brethren, that the gospel which I preached to you did not come from men, for I neither received it from men nor was I taught it, but I received it by a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, how I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my fellow countrymen, being more exceedingly zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, chose to reveal his son in me, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to, to visit with the apostles who were before me. But I went away into Arabia and then returned to Damascus again. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him for 15 days. I did not see any of the, of the Lord's apostles except for James, the Lord's brother, I, I assure you before God in what I'm writing to you, I'm not lying. Then I went away into the regions of Cilicia and Galatia. I remained unknown by sight to the churches in Judea, which are in Christ. They only heard said of me that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they continued to glorify God on my behalf. 
After an interval of 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas, taking Titus along with us also. I went in response to a vision and set before them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I was running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with us, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This matter arose because of certain false brethren secretly brought in to spy upon the liberty which we have in Christ to bring us again into bondage. But we did not yield to them for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Well, those who have reputation, what they are mean, not, means nothing to me. God does not show partiality. Well, those who have reputation contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he who effectually worked with Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me and mine to the uncircumcised, and seeing the grace which had been given to me, those who have reputation, James, Cephas, and John, those reputed to be pillars, extended to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the uncircumcised, while they went to the circumcised. They only asked that we would remember their poor. The very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came down to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, for he stood condemned. From the, until the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when these men came, he began to withdraw, holding himself aloof, for he feared the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews began to follow him in this hypocrisy, to the point where even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not being straightforward to the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? For we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, but recognizing that the Gentiles are justified by faith and not by works of the law, even we have believed on Christ, that we might be justified by faith and not by works of the law, for by works of the law shall no man be justified. If then, while seeking to be justified by faith, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild that which I have destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. If righteousness comes by law, then Christ died needlessly. I will not nullify, that's why I missed that verse. I will not nullify the grace of God. If Christ, if righteousness comes by law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just this one thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by keeping the works of the law, by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed they were in vain? And does he who gives you his spirit and work miracles among you do so because you keep the works of the law or because you hear with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. Be certain, then, that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations shall be blessed in you. 
So then, to those who believe, who share the blessings of Abraham, the believer. For as many as there be who are under the works of the law are under a curse. For it says, Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by everything written in this book of the law to perform them. Now that a man is justified by faith is evident, for it says, The righteous man shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. On the contrary, it says, The man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree, that the blessings of Abraham in Christ might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Brethren, I, I speak of human relations. For although it is only a human covenant, once it is ratified, no one adds conditions or changes it. Now the promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say unto seeds, referring to many, but unto seed, referring to one, that is Christ. What I'm saying is that the law, which came 430 years later, cannot invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promises. If righteousness is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God granted it to Abraham and to us by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels through the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been given. Now a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. Is then the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which had been able to impart life, then righteousness indeed would have been based on law. But Scripture shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might come to those who believe. Until this faith came, we were under the custody of the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. The law then became our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come, you are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all who have been baptized in Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer free man nor slave. There is no longer male or female. But you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, in your Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say that so long as an heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave who is owner of everything. So we too, when we were children, were in custody of the elemental things and in bondage to the elemental things of the world. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And since we are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our heart, enabling us to cry, Abba, Father, you are no longer slaves, but a son, if a son, then an heir, and an heir through God. Now, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to that which by nature are no gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you are turning a back to those weak and worthless elemental things as if you wish to be enslaved to them all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that I've labored among you in vain. My brethren, you did me no wrong. Become as I am, for I've become as you are. As you know, it was because of a physical illness that I first preached the word to you. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise nor loathe, but you welcomed me as, a, as an angel from heaven, as Christ Jesus himself. 
Where is that spirit of blessing you had? For I bear you witness it had it been possible you'd have plucked out your very eyes and given them to me. Have I not become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? They who seek you do not seek you in a commendable fashion, for they wish to shut you out. But it is always good to be sought in a commendable fashion, not only when I am with you, my children with whom I am in travail again until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be present with you now and, and moderate my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You who want to be under the law, do you listen to what the law says? For it says that Abraham had two sons, one born to the bondwoman, the other born to the free woman. The child born to the bondwoman is born according to the flesh. The child born to the free woman is born according to the promise. Uh, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, whose children are to be born into slavery. This is Hagar. This Hagar from Mount Sinai in Arabia corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem, she who is in slavery with their children. But the woman of Jerusalem above is the free woman, and she is our mother. What does it say? Rejoice, O barren woman who does not bear. Break forth with shouts, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than her who has a husband. But you, brethren, are like Isaac, are children of promise. But at that time, the child born according to the flesh persecuted the child born according to the spirit. So it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the child of the bondwoman will not be an heir with the child of the free woman. That you, brethren, are children of the free woman. So keep on standing firm, and do not be subject again to a slavery. For behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. And I say again to every man who is circumcised, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who want to be justified according to the law. You have fallen from grace. We by faith through the Spirit await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. You are running well. Who is it that hindered you from obeying the truth? Such persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Remember, a little leaven leavens the whole dough. And we have confidence in you and the Lord that you will take no other point of view. But as for he who is disturbing you, he will bear his judgment, whoever he may be. For me, if I still preach circumcision, why then am I still being persecuted? The stumbling block of the cross has been removed. As for those who are disturbing you, I wish they'd go the whole way and mutilate themselves. You were called to freedom. Do not turn that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love, serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in this one word in the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on biting and devouring one another, take care lest you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For they are in opposition, so that you do not do that which you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. For the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that, of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you in the past, that those who walk in these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If the Spirit is the source of our life, let us also walk by the Spirit. We must not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. My brethren, if, if one of your number are caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual must restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let a man examine his own work. Then he will have cause for boasting in regard to himself alone and not to anyone else. For each one will bear his own load. Let him who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. As a man sows, so shall he reap. If he sows according to his flesh, from the flesh he will reap corruption. If he sows according to the Spirit, from the Spirit he will reap life. So let us not become tired in well-doing, for we shall reap in due time if we do not grow weary. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of the faith. See with what large letters I'm writing you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not keep the whole law, but they want you to be circumcised so they can boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast of anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. And all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one make trouble for me, for I bear on my bodies the brand marks of Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brethren. And so ends Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. There's a man who was persecuted by the Jews primarily, by the pagans, by anybody that didn't want to hear him. He was beaten unmercifully. At some point, he was branded with the marks of Christ on his hands, on his side, on his feet, to go with him wherever he went. The world in Christ had been crucified to Paul. What does that mean? When you see someone crucified, like Jesus was crucified, he had been beaten beyond recognition as a man. Just a big lump, lump of meat hanging there. All bloody, black and blue, bruised. That's how crucified looks. Crucifixion was so heinous that in the Jewish culture you didn't use the term. It was not something you spoke in mixed company. You said lifted up. That was a nice way of saying crucified. Crucified was so bad you didn't even talk it 
in general conversation. Has the world been crucified to you? Has the world become an image of one hung on a cross and dead and beaten beyond recognition? Have you been crucified to the world? That's easier, you know. All you have to do is claim Christ in everything you do. Claim Jesus in all your language. Claim him in your behavior. Seek to live righteously. You'll be persecuted for the sake of Christ. You can become a dead, awful thing to the world. I think we're supposed to. Has the world become crucified to you and you to the world? So Paul continued to preach, continued to be beaten, continued to be hounded. He got stoned right after this and left for dead, and then God raised him to life. His eyes were continually bad. When he came to the Galatians, his eyes were weeping, and, and they put up with him. And they welcomed him because they heard the truth out of his mouth. He went on to Ephesus eventually and planted a church in Ephesus. Ephesus was probably the leading city of Asia Minor at that time. It was a great center for Diana worship, and we hear about that in the book of Acts. And he stayed there for three years, which was a long time for Paul. And he preached there, and he founded the church there, and it was a church that was zealous for the truth. If you came there and presented yourself as an apostle, they would put you to the test. And if you didn't stand it, you got the left foot of fellowship out the door. Paul left a church behind them that was very concerned about the truth. We know a lot about Ephesus, not because more was written to it, but because it was written to repeatedly through the scriptures. The book of Revelation, that's the end of the first century. Jesus speaks to it. Paul had spoken to it before that. We find out that the church there had walked away from their young love. They had become, I think, caught up in being right instead of just being caught up in loving. They left their early love and their zeal for the lost. Because I believe in being right. I like the truth, and I hold on to it. But I want to love more than be right. They... They were in danger of losing their right to be a church. We know that Paul went there and that he gave an overview of his ministry there in Acts 20, how he labored from house to house with tears. How he persisted there. How he culminated his ministry with a riot and a revival that was almost the hallmark of Paul. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's kind of a, uh, supposedly a rejection letter that Paul got from a mission agency. They said, you're too old. You have bad eyes. Everywhere you go, you cause riots. You've been in prison. You're, you're, you're questionable in, in your morality and, and all your, your undertakings. And so they rejected him as a missionary. But a mighty church started there. A mighty church like us. We Bible believers would feel just right at home in Ephesus, which is cool. We are also at that danger level sometimes in leaving our first love for the love of being right. From Paul, Apostle of Christ Jesus, commissioned by the will of God, 
to God's people at Ephesus, believers in corporate in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In Christ he chose us before the world was found, founded to be dedicated, to be without blemish in his sight, and to be full of love. And he destined us, such was his will and pleasure, to be accepted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in order that the glory of his gracious gift, so graciously bestowed on us and his beloved, might redound to his praise. For in Christ our release is secured, and our sins are forgiven through the shedding of his blood. Therein lies the richness of God's free grace lavished upon us, imparting full wisdom and insight. He has made known to us his hidden purpose. Such was his will and pleasure determined beforehand in Christ to be put into effect when the time was ripe. Namely, that the universe, all in heaven and on earth, might be brought into a unity in Christ. In Christ, indeed, we have been given our share in the heritage, as was decreed in his design, whose purpose is every were at work, for it was his will that we, who were the first to set our hopes on Christ, should cause his glory to be praised. And you too, when you had heard the message of the truth, the good news of your salvation, and had believed it, became incorporate in Christ and received the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is the pledge that we upon our heritage when God redeems what is his own to his praise and glory. Because of all this, now that you've heard of the faith, now that I've heard of the faith you have in the Lord Jesus and the love you bear towards all God's people, I never cease to give thanks for you when I mention you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, your glorious Father, may give you the spiritual gifts of wisdom and revelation by which there comes a knowledge of him. I pray that your inward eyes may be illumined so that you may know what is the hope of which he calls you, what is the wealth and glory of the share he offers us among his people in their heritage, and how vast the resources of his power open to us who trust in him. They are measured by his strength, and the might which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and enthroned him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all government and authority, all power and dominion, and any title of sovereignty that can be named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, he put everything in subjection beneath his feet and appointed him a supreme head to the church, which is his body, and as such holds within it the fullness of him who himself receives the entire fullness of God. Time was when you were dead in your sins and wickedness, when you followed the evil ways of this present age and obeyed the commander of the spiritual powers of the air, the spirit now at work among God's rebel subjects. We too were once of their number. We all lived our lives in sensuality and obeyed the promptings of our own instincts and notions. In our natural condition, we, like all the rest, lay under the dreadful judgment of God. But God, rich in mercy, for the great love he bore us, brought us to life with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in our sins. For it is by his grace you are saved. And in union with Christ Jesus, he raised us up and enthroned us the heavenly realms, in order that he might display in the ages to come how immense are the riches of his, how great is his grace, and how great his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by his grace you are saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. 
It is God's gift, not a reward for work done. There is nothing for anyone to boast of, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to devote ourselves to the good deeds which he has created beforehand for us to walk in. Remember then your former condition, you Gentiles, as you are outwardly, you the uncircumcised, so-called by those that are called the circumcised, but only with reference to an outward rite. You were at that time separate from Christ, strangers to the community of Israel, outside God's covenants and the promise that goes with them. Your world was a world without hope and without God. But now, in union with Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the shedding of the blood of Christ. For he is himself our peace. Gentiles and Jews, he has made the two one, and in his own body of flesh and blood has broken down the enmity which stood like a dividing wall between them. For he annulled the law with its rules and regulations, so as to create out of the two a single new humanity in himself, thereby making peace. This was his purpose, to reconcile the two in a single body to God through the cross on which he killed the enmity. And so he came and proclaimed the good news. Peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are nearby. For through him we both alike have access to the Father in the one spirit. Thus you are no longer aliens in a foreign land, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. You are being built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is the foundation stone. Him, the whole building, is bonded together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you two are being built with all the rest into a spiritual dwelling for God. With this in mind, then I make my prayer. I, Paul, who in the cause of you Gentiles am now the prisoner of Christ Jesus. For surely you have heard how God has assigned the gift of his grace to me for your benefit. It was by revelation that his secret was made known to me. I have already written a brief account of this, and by reading it you may, partake, you may understand that I understand the secret of the Christ. In former generations, the secret was not disclosed to the human race, but now it has been revealed by inspiration to his dedicated apostles and prophets that through the gospel, the Gentiles are joint heirs with the Jews, part of the same body, Shares together in the promise made in Christ Jesus. Such is the gospel of which I have been made a minister. By God's gift, bestowed unmerited on me in the working of his power. On me, who am less than the least of all God's people, he has granted of his grace the privilege of proclaiming to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ and of bringing to light how this hidden purpose was to be put into effect. It was hidden for long ages in God, the creator of the universe, in order that now through the church, the wisdom of God in all its varied forms might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the realms of heaven. This is in accord with his age-long purpose, which he achieved in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we have access to God with freedom in the confidence born of trust in him. I beg you then not to lose heart over my sufferings for you. Indeed, they are your glory. With this in mind, then I, I kneel in prayer to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, that out of the treasures of his glory he may grant you strength and power in his spirit through your inner being, that through faith Christ might come to dwell in your hearts in love. With deep roots and firm foundations, may you be strong to grasp with all God's people what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, and to know it, though it is beyond knowledge, 
so may you attain to fullness of being, the fullness of God himself. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or conceive by the very power which is at work among us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus from generation to generation evermore. I entreat you then, I a prisoner for the Lord's sake, as God has called you, live up to your calling. Be humble always and patient and gentle too. Be forbearing with one another and charitable. Spare no effort to make fast with bonds of peace the unity which the Spirit gives. For there is one body and one Spirit, as there is also one hope held out in God's call to you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But each of us has been given his gift, his due portion of Christ's bounty. And therefore, Scripture says, he ascended into the heights with captives in his train. He gave gifts to men. Now, the word ascended implies that he also descended to the regions beneath the earth. And he who ascended is far above all those. Boy, I got that wrong. What did I do? All I know the next verse, and these are his gifts. Some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to equip God's people for work in his service to the building up of the body of Christ. So shall we all at last attain to the unity inherent in our faith and our knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, measured by nothing less than the full stature of Christ himself. We are no longer to be children, tossed by the waves and whirled about by every fresh gust of teaching, dupes of crafty rogues and their deceitful schemes. No, let us speak the truth in love. So shall we fully grow up into Christ. He is the head, and on him the whole body depends, bonded and knit together by every constituent joint. The whole frame grows through the due activity of each part, and so builds its Self up in love. This then is my word to you, and I urge it upon you in the Lord's name. Give up living like pagans with their good for nothing notions, when their wits are beclouded and they are strangers to the life that is in God, because ignorance prevails among them, and their minds have grown hard as stone. Dead to all feeling, they have abandoned themselves to vice and will stop at nothing to satisfy their foul desires. But that is not how you learned Christ. For were you not told of him? Were you not as Christians taught the truth as it is in Jesus, that leaving your former way of life, you must lay aside that old human nature which, polluted by its lust, is sinking towards death? You must be made new in mind and spirit and put on the new nature of God's creating, which shows itself in the righteous and devout life called for by the truth. And throw off falsehood and let us speak the truth to each other. For each of us are the parts of one body. If you are angry, do not let anger lead you into sin. Do not let sunset find you still nursing it. Leave no loophole for the devil. The thief must give up stealing, instead work hard and honestly with his own hands. And no bad language must pass your lips, but only what is good and helpful to the occasion, so that it brings a blessing to those who hear it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, for that Spirit is the seal with which you were marked for the day of our final liberation, have done with spite and passion, all angry shouting and cursing and bad feeling of every kind. Be generous to one another and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In a word, as God's dear children, 
be imitators of God and live in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up on your behalf as an offering and sacrifice whose fragrance is pleasing to God. Fornication and indecency or ruthless greed must not be so much as mentioned among you as befits God's holy people. No coarse, stupid, or flippant talk. These things are out of place. You should rather be thanking God or be very sure of this. No one given to fornication or indecency or the greed which makes an idol of gain has any share in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with shallow arguments. It is for all these things that God's dreadful judgment is coming to fall upon his rebel subjects. So take no part or lot with them, for once you were all darkness, but now as Christians you are light. Live like men who are at home in the daylight, for where light is there all goodness springs up, all righteousness and truth. So try to find out what would please the Lord, and take no part in the barren deeds of darkness, but show them up for what they are. When the things that even to mention, but everything when once the light has shown it up is illumined. Everything thus illumined is all light. And so the hymn says, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Be most careful then how you conduct yourselves. Like sensible men, not like simpletons. Use the present opportunity to the full, for these are evil days. So do not be fools, but try to understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not give way to drunkenness and the dissipation that goes with it, but let the Spirit fill you. Be subject to one another. Oh, and give thanks every day for everything in the name of Jesus Christ, to God the Father. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as to the Lord, for the man is the head of the woman, just as Christ also is the head of the body. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so must women be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to consecrate her, washing her with the water of the hearing of the word, so he might present the church to himself all glorious, without stain or wrinkle or anything of the sort, but holy and without blemish. In the same way, also men are bound to love, they love their wives, they love their own bodies. When a man's loving his wife, he's loving himself. For no one ever hated his own body. On the contrary, he provides and cares for it. And that is how Christ treats the church, which is his body, of which we are living parts. Thus it is that in the words of Scripture, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a great truth that is hidden here. I, for my part, refer it to Christ and to the church. But it also applies individually. Each of you must see to it that he loves his wife as his very self. And the woman must see to it that she pays her husband all respect. Children, obey your parents. It is right that you should. Honor your father and mother as the first commandment with a promise attached in the words that it might be well with you and that you might live long in the land. You fathers, again, do not goad your children into resentment, but give them the instruction and the correction which belong to a Christian upbringing. Slaves, you must obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, single-mindedly as serving Christ. Do not offer merely the outward show of service to curry favor with men, but as slaves of Christ, do give wholeheartedly the service of the Lord, not merely man. For you know that whatever good each man may do, slave or free, will be repaid him by the Lord. And you, you masters also must do the same by them. Give up using threats. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. 
Finally then, find your strength in the Lord, in his mighty power. Put on all the armor which God provides. Then you'll be able to stand your ground against all the devices of the devil. For our fight is not against human foes, but against cosmic powers, against the authorities and potentates of this dark world, against the superhuman forces of evil in the heavens. Therefore, take up God's armor. Then you'll be able to stand your ground when things are at their worst, to complete every task and still to stand. Stand firm, I say. Fasten on the belt of truth. For breastplate put on righteousness. Let the shoes on your feet be the gospel of peace to give you firm footing. And with all this, take up the great shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take salvation for helmet. For sword, take that which the Spirit gives, the words which come from God. And give yourself wholly to prayer and entreaty, praying on every occasion the power of the Spirit. To this end, keep watch and persevere, always interceding for all God's people. And pray for me. That I might be granted the right words when I open my mouth, that I might freely and boldly make known his hidden purpose, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might speak of it boldly, as it is my duty to speak. You will want to, all want to know about my affairs and how I am. Tychicus will give you all the news. He is our dear friend and trustworthy helper in the Lord's work. I'm sending him to you on purpose to let you know all about us and to put fresh heart into you. Peace to the brotherhood and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love imperishable. And so ends Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Awake, sleep, arise from the dead. We were walking down the street in uh, San Jose, California. We had a 12-foot cross. You ever go out and walk across? It's kind of an interesting experience. And uh, we weren't trying to get people to do penance or anything, and we weren't doing it. We were just trying to get people to think about the size of the cross, 12 feet tall, 6 feet wide. And that what happened on a cross, Jesus died for them. And so we were preaching that, and People were crossing the street. <laughs> it was a one-way street, and we were trying to give them Bibles and tracts and stuff. And There was a guy sitting in the car, and he, he saw me coming, had his window down, because it was often warm there, and he saw me coming and pretended to be asleep. <sighs> Fake snores, right? And I didn't know what to think of it, so I, I just said, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you, from Ephesians. <laughs> and he went, all right, okay, fine. So I walked on by, and then he heard the cross scraping on the ground, and he turned to look. And a friend of mine was right behind me and got a hold of his hand. We call that the grip of life, and led him to, pre to receive Christ there. He was waiting for his wife, who was shopping in a storefront. She comes out, and here's her husband, who she'd been praying for for years. He was a believer. And he's praying to receive Christ with these two weird street preachers. And uh, <laughs> so we had church there in the street. It's pretty fun. The word is alive. The word's alive. But that's our word to the world, isn't it? Awake, sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Paul left Ephesus after that riot. He came back, stopped, visited the Ephesian elders away from the city, and talked about the fact that no man's blood could be laid to his account. That's an amazing statement, you know. He's hearkening back to Ezekiel and to the watchman's call, where if the watchman was faithful, he, there would be no guilt on him, even if the 
army came and attacked the city, if he was faithful and announced it and warned them and they didn't take heed. But if he saw it and didn't announce it, then their blood was on his head. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I don't want that to happen to me. Right? So Paul was a watchman on the wall of the world. And he went to the Gentiles and he warned them about the coming wrath and retribution of God. Athens had a plague about the time that Isaiah was being cut in half by Manasseh, the evil king. You know that story probably. And Manasseh was pretty evil. He filled Jerusalem with the blood of innocent people from one end to the other. Well, about that time, Athens in, on the Achaean Peninsula there uh, was having a plague and people were dying in mass. Even in those days, there were it was hard to find a man in the city, but you could find idols by the hundreds. They would conquer. Athens was pretty powerful, and they would conquer these small city-states, and they would take their gods and set them, up, set them up in Athens. Now, why they did that, I haven't got the vaguest idea. Why you would take a god from a city you already defeated and put it up in your city to pray to is beyond my understanding. But they filled their city with them. So they're having this plague, and, and the, the fires of the of the pyres where they were burning the bodies, the smoke filled the air, stung the nostrils and the eyes. The, the lamentations, the dirges being sung for the dead polluted the ears, and it went on 24 hours a day. Every morning the dead would be brought out and would be taken to burn, and the fires would go all day and all night. And they offered sacrifice to all the gods they could imagine and got no answer. And this went on for some time, and the city was in desperate straits. They sent to the Delphi Oracle, who was a Greek prophetess, and she told them to go to, to Crete. Crete? And that there they would find a, a man who would tell them what to do. Well, Crete had a bad reputation then. It's got, it got one Paul talks about how bad it was later. And so they sent to Crete, and brought this guy back whose name was Epimenides. Well, Epimenides looked around and he had been posturing and postulating on the fact that there had to be a God who was above all these other gods, who didn't answer when you prayed to them, who were just idols, who were nothing. And he came to the firm conviction that there was a God above all gods who would answer if you applied and prayed to him. He didn't know his name, but he was convinced he would answer. So the Athenians called him and promised him riches, peace between Athens and Gnosis, which was the city-state of Crete, who had been at war, if he could answer and stop the plague. So he suggested that what they do is get a bunch of sheep together on the hill below where the Parthenon would later be built. At that time, it was just a hillside, and it was covered with long grass. So he said, bring a flock of sheep, all healthy, white, black, spotted, it doesn't matter, male, female, doesn't matter. Just bring the sheep there, stone masons, stone and mortar. So at first light, as they brought the dead out to take to the funeral pyres, a large crowd gathered at the bottom of this hill, and there was a flock of sheep. 
And Epimenides said, let the sheep go on the hillside. And where they lay down, mark the spot. Well, he led them in prayer to this God whose name they did not know. Ask him to answer and reveal himself. And everybody was sure that that was the biggest bunch of hooey they'd ever heard. Because the grass was long. It was breakfast. The sheep were hungry. They're not going to lay down, right? So they let the sheep out on the hillside, and they start to eat like in every, all the wags are going, see, I told you, they weren't going to lay down. All of a sudden, one lay down. Then another. Then another. Nine of them. Epimenes said, mark the spot, take the sheep. He says, everywhere that a sheep laid down, I want you to build an altar. Build it now, quickly. So they built altars on all those spots. And they, you didn't build an altar in Greece without putting the name of the God in whose honor you built the altar. But they said, what name should we put on this altar? He said, we don't know his name. We'll not be presumptuous and assume a name. We will just dedicate these altars to an unknown God, Agnostos Theos. So they built nine altars, put Agnostos Theos on each one. He said, now sacrifice each of these sheep, the sheep on the altar at the place where it laid down. So as they were sacrificing, he read the, led them in prayer to the God whose name they did not know, who he called upon to stop the plague, to reveal himself to them and stop the plague. And you know what? The plague stopped. People stopped dying immediately. Over the next day, the fires went out. The lamentations stopped. They honored Epimenides. They, they built a statue to him and pushed, put it on that hill. They signed a peace treaty with Gnosis and sent him on his way. And immediately began to forget what had happened. Over the years, the altars were vandalized and scandalized and, and torn down. About 20 years later, two older men who had been young men when it happened were walking along the street and they noticed one of the altars, the one that was closest to the road. And they said, let us not allow this altar to be destroyed, but rather let us keep it here and maintain it at city expense and not forget Agnostos Theos. And so they did. 600 years later, the Apostle Paul, who was learned in the cultures of the Mediterranean and the Greek cultures, and who knew of the Cretans, who knew of Epimenides, came to Athens. And as he walked around and looked at all their objects of religion, he found the altar that he'd been looking for. Agnostos Theos, an unknown God. Well, he was disputing with the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers, the guys who said you could do everything and the guys who said you couldn't do anything. And of course, none of it worked at all. And, uh, and they, he started talking about the resurrection. They said, well, you're talking about stuff that we don't know if we can even believe, right? Of course, the Athenians, all they did every day was argue about the latest thing. How many how many angels can sit on the head of a pin? Really important stuff like that, right? And so they got Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus, the gathering of the elders of the city. It was on 
the mount by the Parthenon, which had been built. And Paul addressed them. And he said, men of Athens, I can see that you're very religious. For as I walked about your city and, and gazed upon your objects of religion, I even came upon this altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And he was speaking Greek, by the way, and they were making fun of his Greek. They called him a babbler, which is, the name is uh, Barbarian. That's where that name Barbarian came from, ba ba ba, because you did not speak the Greek of Athens or any other Greek state. They were very concerned about their Greek. They didn't care about anybody, anything else, but you had to speak their Greek, right? And Paul, who knew Greek perfectly well, they called him a babbler. Anyway, he's speaking their language. He said, Now that God that you worship is unknown, I will declare to you. The God who created the earth and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, for he himself gives to men life and breath and everything else. From one man he created all the tribes of men and appointed them to fill the earth. He appointed the exact places where they should live and their times. And he did so that they might turn towards him and reach for him and seek him and find him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, if we are the offspring of God, it is not to be thought that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, images made by humans' hands and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he has commanded that all men everywhere repent, and he has set a day on which he will judge mankind by the one man whom he has appointed, and he has given evidence of this by raising him from the dead. And they went, whoa, don't call us, we'll call you. Uh, they said, that's a paraphrase. Uh, they, said, <laughs> they said, we'll talk about this more with you later, right? And some believe, though, None of the leadership did. Of course, Paul didn't name Jesus. That's the one man. By the way, that's a really good sermon to use in India when your audience is Hindu, who believe in multiple gods like they did at that time. Well, Epimenides was known to Paul, and the reason I know he was known to Paul is because he quoted him. He quotes him there when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's Epimenides. He says, even some of your own poets, he quotes three poets, and one of them was Epimenides, who said, we are his offspring. Paul quotes him again in another book in the Bible, in the book of Titus. And his quote's kind of fun, because if you quoted it now, you'd get fired from whatever media you'd be working for. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and this testimony is true. <laughs> It's not, not bad enough that he said it, but he had to reiterate it. This testimony is true. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and his appointed season has brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason that I left you in Crete 
Well, that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. As an overseer of God's people, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not violent, not given to drunkenness, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. That he might instruct others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially among the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths and to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who corrupt it and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach older men to be worthy of respect, to be temperate, self-controlled, upright, and disciplined. Likewise, teach older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can teach younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be keepers at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their own husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, teach younger men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Similarly, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to steal from them, and not to talk back to them, but to show that in everything they can be fully trusted and in every way, so that they will make the gospel attractive. For the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people of his very own eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be always ready to do whatever is good, to be peaceable and considerate, to slander no one, and to show true humility towards everyone. For at one time we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived our lives in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. 
But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us generously in Christ Jesus our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, for these things are are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments and quarrels about the law, for these things are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be certain that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis to you, dear utmost to join me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do all, everything you can to help Zenos Salar and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. All those with me send greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul went to Crete though its reputation was everybody was evil brutes and lazy gluttons. He went there and found out this testimony is true, but he still preached over the whole island. He left Titus to straighten out what was left unfinished, to go back into those cities that they'd preached in and to organize the church and appoint elders that God had raised up. Pretty exciting. But the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. Isn't that a wonderful truth? And he teaches us, it teaches us to live self-controlled and holy lives. To say no to worldly passion. To live for God. It teaches us that. The gospel teaches us that. You don't need anybody else to teach you that. Paul ended up in Rome. Of course, all the roads led to Rome. Paul ended up there too. Of course, he didn't take a road to get there. took a boat. Got driven there by a storm. Ended up in the king's palace. The palace was a, a vast assemblage of dwelling. And the emperor lived in a part of it. And his, he had this vast array of servants. Had his special guard live there as well. And Paul ended up in a cell in the guardhouse area. It was called the Imperial Establishment because there were so many people there. You know, nothing was secret because you had servants everywhere, right? So no matter what was going on, that news was traveling faster than you could possibly send it, right? It went out to everybody. The gossip uh, lines were really busy and really fast. So, and Paul was living there, and it blesses me that God chose to take this man in weakness, because he tells him that strength comes to its full power in weakness, right? And ends up in prison, chained to a guard 24 hours a day. I mean, if he rolled over, the guard had to roll over, right? If the guard rolled over, you had to roll over. But people came every day to dispute with them. And of course, they didn't feed their prisoners there, so you had to have people on the outside to feed you, which was really bad if you didn't have anybody on the outside to feed you. And Paul is learning 
that his strength comes to its full power and weakness. And he learned to be well content in weakness and frustration and all those things. And he ends up there writing letters, sending them out throughout the whole Mediterranean that the whole known world, the whole civilized world was being ministered to from the imperial palace. <laughs> and Rome was against Christianity then, by then. The first general persecution empire-wide had broken out and people were being burned and killed and beheaded for being Christians. Of course, if you were a Roman citizen, you had your head cut off. That was one of the perks of being a citizen. Remember Paul was being bitten and beaten and he told the guy, I'm a Roman citizen, and they stopped being him. And, and the soldiers, the centurion said, I bought mine. Paul said, I was born to mine. Oop, don't tell Because he had a right to be before a justice. As a matter of fact, he claimed the right to go to Caesar. That's why he was there. And when they killed you, they cut your head off, which was fast, instead of crucifying you, which happened for everybody else. Now, I hear when your head gets cut off, you kind of see yourself as you roll away, but I don't know that for a fact. Yeah. So Paul ended up having his head cut off eventually. His plan was to go to Spain and take the gospel there. His plan, he told the church in Rome when he wrote Romans, probably from Ephesus, he said, I'm going to come to you in all the blessing, the full blessing of Christ himself. That's from the 15th chapter of Romans. And what does that mean? The full blessings of Christ. That's how he came in chains. That's how he came in weakness, in meekness. That's the full blessings of Christ. He said, God, take this thorn away from my flesh. Whatever it was, maybe his eyes had gotten bad again so he couldn't see at all. Maybe, maybe he had another physical ailment. Some say it was a person. We don't know. He said, God, take it away. He asked him three times. God said, no, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. And Paul gets to Rome in a prison cell People come dispute with them, all kinds of things. Eventually, his plan to go to Spain did not happen. Now, some, there is a tradition that Paul was released from this imprisonment, took a final mission trip, went back to Philippi, because you'll note in this letter he told them he was coming. Some say he did that, and then got rearrested, sent back to Rome and killed, because we know he died in Rome. I personally don't think he was ever released. I think he thought he was going to be released. I think his hope was to get released. I think he didn't get released. We know he did not go on to Spain. Of course, the word of God went on to Spain. Paul said, I'm shut up, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Right? You can't imprison the word of God. It's a seed we had a big rock on our road when we lived in Northern California, and a seed got down in a crack in that rock, a little tiny crack, big rock. And as soon as you saw that tree start to sprout above the edge of that crack, you knew that the rock was doomed. It wasn't going to be a rock long. That little tiny seed sprouted a root that went down looking for water. And it went down in those cracks in that rock and got to water and it started to grow and that old crack became a big chasm and the rock got destroyed and the tree grew. 
That's the gospel. It's a seed. And it cannot be shut up. It cannot be imprisoned. And it'll bear fruit for God. Paul in prison writes back to a church he founded. And it's really a letter back to his mission church and to his mission board, if you will, and to his sending church, not to Antioch, but to Philippi, a church he founded and became his sending church. Uh, The first congregation that was his partners in payments and receipts. And years later, after they've sent someone there with money for him to help him out in prison, he sends that man back with this letter. And although 2 Timothy may be later, Philippians is right pretty close in there. He says, from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace to the church of God at Philippi, including your bishops and deacons. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God whenever I think of you. And when I pray for you all, my prayers are always joyful because of the part you have taken in the work of the gospel from the first day until now. Of one thing I am certain, the one who started the good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. It is indeed only right that I should feel this way about you all, because you hold me in such affection. Whether I lie in prison or appear in the dock to vouch for the truth of the gospel, you all share in the privilege that is mine. God knows how I long for you all with a deep yearning of Christ Jesus himself, and this is my prayer, that your love may grow ever richer and richer in knowledge and insight of every kind and may teach you by experience what things are most worthwhile. Then on the day of Christ Jesus, you'll be flawless and without blame, reaping the full harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. My friends, I want you to understand that the work of the gospel has been helped on rather than hindered by this imprisonment of mine, Praise God. My imprisonment in Christ's cause has caused confidence to most of our fellow Christians to speak the word of God fearlessly and with extraordinary courage. Some indeed proclaim Christ in a jealous and quarrelsome spirit, others in true goodwill. And these are moved by love for me. They know that it is to defend the gospel that I am where I am, but the others moved by personal rivalry present Christ from mixed motives, meaning to stir up fresh trouble for me as I lie in prison. What does it matter one way or another? Christ is set forth, and for that I rejoice, whether in pretense or sincerity. Christ is set forth, and for that I rejoice. Yes, and rejoice I will, knowing full well that the issue of it all will be my deliverance, because you are praying for me, and because the Spirit of Jesus Christ has given me for support. For as I passionately hope, I will have no cause to be ashamed, but will speak so boldly that now, as always, the greatness of Christ will shine out clearly in my person, whether through my life or through my death. For to me, to live is Christ and death gain. Oh, what then if my staying in the body should serve some good purpose? Which am I to choose? I cannot tell. I am torn two ways. What I should like is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. But for your sake, there is greater need that I stay on in the body. And this I know for certain. I shall stay and stand by you all and, and to add joy to your faith and help you forward. Only... 
is greater by far. But for your sake, there's greater need that I stand. I already said that. Hmm. I'm going to look. Can I look? Okay. All I know is that Paul calls you to live a life worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you for myself or hear about you from a distance, I will know that you are standing firm, one in spirit, one in mind, contending as one man for the gospel faith. This will cause consternation to your opponents. Where are we here? Yeah, I had the right verse. Cool. I love it when I think I'm wrong and I'm right. Isn't that neat? (laughs) Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you for myself or hear about you from a distance, I will know that you are standing firm, one in spirit, one in mind, contending as one man for the gospel faith, confronting your opponents without so much as a tremor. This is a sure sign to them that their doom is sealed, but a sign of your salvation and one afforded by God himself, for you have been granted the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but also of suffering for him. You and I are engaged in the same contest. You saw me in it once, and as you see, I am in it still. If then, our common life in Christ yields anything to stir the heart, any loving consolation, any warmth of affection, any sharing of the Spirit, fill up my cup of blessing by thinking and feeling alike with the same love for one another, the same turn of mind, and the common care for unity. There must be no room for rivalry or personal vanity among you, but you must humbly reckon others better than yourselves. Look to your each, each other's interests, not merely to your own. Let your bearing towards one another be like that which was in Christ Jesus. For the divine nature was his from the first, yet he did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped, but emptied himself, assuming the very nature of a slave, bearing the human likeness, revealed in human shape. He humbled himself and accepted even death. Yes, death on a cross, and therefore God raised him to the heights and bestowed upon him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and in the depths, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory and praise of God the Father. So you too must be obedient, even more now that I'm away than when I was with you. You must work out your own salvation in fear and trembling because it's God who works in you, inspiring both the will and the deed for his own chosen purpose. Do all you have to do without wrangling or complaint. Show yourself guileless and above reproach, faultless children of God in a warped and crooked generation in which you shine like stars in a dark world and hold forth the word of life. Thus you will be my pride in the day of Christ Jesus. Proof! that I did not run my race in vain nor work in vain. But if my life's blood is to crown that sacrifice, which is the offering up of your faith, I am glad of it. Rejoice, you no less than I, and let us share our joy. I wish you all joy. It seems good enough I send Timothy to you soon. It will cheer me to hear news of you, and he's the only one here who shares, who sees things as I do and shares a genuine interest in your concern. Everyone else is bent on their own ends and not on the cause of Christ. Timothy's record, however, is known to you. You know how he has served with me as a son of his father. 
Timothy, then I will send to you as ever soon as I ever see how things are going with me here. And I'm confident that I myself will be coming before long. I think it also right to send Epaphroditus, my fellow worker, yoke fellow, comrade whom you assigned to minister to my needs. He has been missing you all sorely, and he was distressed that you heard he was ill. He was indeed dangerously ill, but God was merciful to him, and merciful no less to me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am all the more eager to send him to you, so that you may have the joy of seeing him in sorrow. Welcome him, then, in the fellowship of the Lord with, with unbridled affection. You should honor men like him. In the cause of Christ, he came near to death to render me the service you could not give. Farewell, then. I wish you all joy. All joy be yours. Now, for me to repeat what I have already written to you is no trouble for me. and is a safeguard for you. Beware of those dogs and their malpractices. Beware of those who insist upon mutilation, circumcision, I will not call it. We are the circumcised. We whose worship is spiritual, whose pride is in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence at all in anything external. Not that I'm without grounds myself for confidence of this kind. If anyone thinks to base his claim on externals, I can make a stronger case. Myself circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite by race of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born and bred. In my attitude toward the law, a Pharisee. In pious zeal, a persecutor of the church. In legal rude, faultless. But all such assets I have written off because of Christ. I would say more. I count everything sheer loss because all is far outweighed by the gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake, in fact, I have lost everything. I count it so much garbage for the sake of gaining Christ and finding myself in Him, in corporate in Him, with no righteousness of my own, no legal rectitude, but the righteousness that comes from faith in Christ given by God in response to faith. All I care for is to know Christ, to experience the power of his resurrection, to become one in the fellowship of his sufferings, daily being conformed to a death like his. If only I might finally arrive at the resurrection from the dead. It is not to be thought that I have achieved all this. I have not yet reached perfection, but I press on, hoping to take hold of that for which Christ once took hold of me. My friends, I do not reckon myself to got hold of it yet. Just this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching out towards that which lies ahead, I press towards the goal to win the prize, which is God's call to the life above in Christ Jesus. Let us then keep to this way of thinking, those of us who are mature, if there's any point on which also you feel differently, this also God will make clear to you. Only let your conduct be consistent with the level you have already achieved. Agree together, my friends, to follow my example. You have us for a model. Watch those whose way of life conforms to it. For as I have often told you before, and I'll tell you with tears in my eyes, there are many whose way of life makes them enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their appetite is their God, and they glory in the things they ought to be ashamed of. Their minds are set on earthly things. But we, by contrast, are citizens of heaven. And it's from heaven that we expect our deliverer to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transfigure the body belonging to our humble state and give it a form like that of his own body by the very power which enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, Beloved friends, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, 
Stand thus firm in the Lord, my beloved. I beg Yodia and I beg Sintishi to agree together in the Lord's fellowship. And you also, my, my loyal yoke fellow, I ask you to, to help these women who stood so loyally by me in the cause of Christ, as did my other yoke fellows, such as Clement, whose names are in, inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life. Farewell. I wish you all joy. All joy be yours. Let your gentleness and magnanimous spirit be known to all. The Lord is near, so have no anxiety. But in everything, make your requests known to God with prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond your utmost understanding, will keep guard over your hearts and thoughts in Christ Jesus. And now, my friends, whatever is true, whatever is noble and pure, Whatever is excellent and admirable, whatever is lovable and gracious, if there be anything praiseworthy, fill your thoughts with these things. The lessons I taught you, the traditions I passed on, whatever you heard me say and saw me do, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. It is a great joy to me in the Lord that after so long of time your care for me has now blossomed afresh. You did care for me before for that matter. It was opportunity that you lacked, not that I'm alluding to want, for I have learned to be content in each and every situation. I know what it is to have an abundance. I know what it is to be without anything. I have been very thoroughly initiated into the human lot with all its ups and downs, fullness and hunger, plenty and want, but I can do all things through him who gives me power. But it was kind of you to share the burden of my troubles. For as you know yourself, Philippians, in the early days of my mission, when I first set out from Macedonia, you alone of all our congregations were my partners in payments and receipts. Do not think I set my heart upon the gift. All I care for is the profit accruing to you. However, here's my receipt for everything, for more than everything. I'm amply paid now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. It is a fragrant offering, pleasing to God and my God shall supply all of your needs out of the abundance of his riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory for endless ages. Amen. Greet all the brethren there, all the brethren with me send greetings, especially those of the imperial establishment. Grace be with your spirit. And so ends Philippians and Paul's ministry for the night. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these folk and for the privilege of being allowed to speak to them. I pray that the life of Paul will take root through his word, that we might listen to what he taught, that we might put it into practice, that we might know that the God of peace, you, will be with us. Become a seed in each life here to bear fruit for God, 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold. Go back in remembrance and cleanse it from that which is of me and my flesh and my weakness. Leave only the living seed of your word in each heart. Glorify your name in that seed. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. <laughs>